Welcome back to The Line Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander, and this is a place that we bring together the world's leading experts in all things health and wellness to help you optimize your mind, body, and movement. Today's conversation is with someone that I am honored and privileged to call a friend, Dr. Gabor Mate. I would consider Dr. Gabor to be uh, the world's preeminent expert on the psychology around addiction. Um, I would also consider him to be a, a real, he's like a national treasure, I would say, or an international treasure. He's, he's Canadian. Um, and a true elder in our culture as well. Uh, someone that has deep wisdom, has lived a very interesting, complex, beautiful life. And uh, he has a book that just came out called The Myth of Normal. And uh, it's a New York Times bestseller. It's been on the New York Times list for the last couple of weeks. And uh, it's very good. So Dr. Gamor, fantastic human. This conversation is deep. It's interesting. Uh, it's a lot of powerful stuff in the realm of relationships with yourself, with others, uh, trauma, what trauma is, defining trauma, how to navigate that and come into relation with that or resolve, uh, and a lot more. So I think you guys are really love this conversation. Go grab his book. Uh, and also we are launching the six-week Align Method online program. I am so ridiculously excited about this thing. It is a six-week program. Uh, the first week is absolutely free. Uh, so you can start the free trial on there. You can get your assessment so you can self-assess yourself and sort out what is the functionality of your ranges of motion in your body. Uh, breaks down fundamental mobility practices that you'd learn from most any effective PT or perhaps manual therapist uh, and really teaches you how to be able to take responsibility for your own movement function. So that is the first week completely free. You can find that at alignpodcast.com slash AMP. Align Method Program is what that stands for. So linepodcast.com slash AMP, you can sign up there. And then from there, it transitions into recovering full functional range of motion of all of the joints in the body. Second week is lower body, third week is upper body, fourth week gets into contralateral movement, rotational movement, and multiplanar movement. So moving like a human, kicking, punching, throwing, things of the sort. Fifth week is nervous system regulation. Sixth week is aligning your environment. So I'm super, super excited about it. Uh, I think you guys are gonna dig it and you get the first week free go to linepodcast.com slash AMP to get going on the free trial of that sweet, sultry mofo of a program. That is it. That is all. Let's get to it with my guy, Dr. Gabor Mate. How have you been, Dr. Gabor? How is, how is, how are you feeling in, in, uh, in your, in your heart right now, in your mind, your body. How, how are things feeling for you right now? Uh, very comfortable, uh, peaceful. Um, the breath certainly helped. Um, I'm just come off this long book tour in which I did overextend myself in a number of ways. So it's a bit of an adjustment, but um, yeah, it's all good now. How do you purge stress from your body? Well, so one thing I do, Aaron, is I, I have to exercise every day. So everywhere I travel, and I traveled in Europe and Eastern, Western United States, Canada, um, Eastern, Western Europe, and I got to swim every day. So that's pretty much a requirement that wherever I stay, there's going to be a pool accessible for me. So I do anywhere from usually from 1500 to 2K every day. That's important for me. On some days, not all days I do a bit of a yoga routine. Um, 
that's mostly it. I, I read, you know, and George's quiet reading. Um, that's mostly it. You mentioned, I've heard you, you mentioned the story of you going to an ayahuasca ceremony or gathering a doctor, I think it was like 26 doctors and you weren't leading the ceremony, but you were facilitating with yeah. helping set with the intentions and kind of talking through things afterwards, I'd imagine. And one of the things that stood out in you describing that story is that the uh, maestros or maestras or shamans from that place, they were anticipating these 26 plus you doctors to come and be like light work yeah. because assumably they are probably like them where they have these restorative practices and purgative practices and they're working with people with regularity, but they're the, they're the maestros, you know, or the, the teachers or the doctors of, 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 of purging the stress. Yeah. And from what I heard you suggest is that was for the shamans was the, like the, the heaviest lift they had had from a, yeah. So in, in, in my chapter on psychedelics, I, I do discuss this incident and, um, these shamans in the Amazon jungle, uh, because we were healers, actually 24 of us all together coming from all over the world, they expected us to be equally adept at healing ourselves and all the traumas and stresses that we deal with in our clients and patients. They thought we'd be doing the work to purge ourselves of them because that's they do that. And what they found out that they never worked with such a heavy bunch of people as, as, as myself and my students, you might say, because we'd all worked with so much trauma, but nothing in our education prepares us to deal with our own traumas, let alone how to deal with absorbing the traumas of all the people as that we work with as physicians, psychiatrists, or counselors. It's all about trauma, and yet nothing prepares us to either deal with our own or, or to keep ourselves clear of the stresses and traumas of others. So for them, it was quite a... Uh, quite a realization to see how poorly we are taking care of ourselves. What do you think it is about modern culture that uh, seem, seems to lack, um, s call it purgative practices, for lack of better words, of deep, internalized, Im implicit, or maybe explicit traumas of the day, traumas of, of our childhood, traumas of our ancestry, if one believes in that thing, which I don't think it's really a belief thing. I think it's, you know, it's actual yeah. proven data in science. Uh, but what do you think it is about our culture that lacks purgative practices around that if if it does lack that at all? Like, wh why isn't that more of a meaningful part of our education growing up? Well, it, it, it misses it completely. The culture misses that completely. First of all, the culture is based on certain assumptions. I mean, capitalist culture is based on certain assumptions that about human beings, who we are and what our goals and needs are and primarily it sees as individualistic competitive aggressive selfish creatures which right away goes against the commonality and communality in which human beings actually evolved hmm. and so that that separation is intrinsically stressful and yet it it's maintained as sort of the highest value you know number one uh number two uh, indigenous cultures always had communal practices for purging stress and dealing with um, difficult situations, you know, chanting and dancing and ceremony and singing and drumming and, you know, all kinds of medicinal practices, you know. So we don't have those anymore. Um, 
how, how we raise children is basically almost designed to hurt them and to suck up their pain, you know, so that indigenous cultures, as all mammals, by the way, respond to their infant's distress by immediately coming to them or picking them up. Parents in this society are told not to pick up their crying kids, to toughen them up, and uh, not to pick up a, a baby who wants to be picked up because they should go back to sleep on their own. Well, what does that baby learn? They learn that they're on their own. And then in the book, The Myth of Normal, I give the example of Hillary Clinton, who tells this story at the Democratic Convention when she's nominated in 2016 that she run to, she's four years old and she runs to her mother into her mother's house because she's being bullied by neighborhood kids and she's afraid. So she does what any mammal young creature does when they're afraid they run to the protective parent. And the mother says, you get out of here. There's no room for cowardice in this house. You get out there and deal with it. So that retelling is to suck it up and deal with it on their own rather than to seek help. And then you get the people that go into the helping professions like myself. Often we're traumatized in the first place. The training itself is very stressful, sometimes traumatizing. And if you show any weakness or vulnerability, you're considered the wimp and you're not good enough to make the grade. And then we're taught nothing about trauma so that, you know, in his book, I show how all mental illness and much of physical illness, not all, but much of chronic physical illness has got significant roots in childhood stress and trauma. But the average doctor, and, and there's been a lot of science to show that. I mean, it's not even controversial when you look at the evidence. The average doctor never hears that. Hmm. So let alone do they have to work with trauma, the they're left totally blind to the fact that that's what they're working with. So how can they help but absorb it? Plus, they've been trained to suck it up themselves. Yeah. So, and then you have the toxic masculine ethic of, of you have to be macho and suck it up and, you know, tough it out. And this is how we train a lot of men. So I've, I've worked with veterans and, and with PTSD. And the first thing they have to give up is this toxic masculinity where they actually have to acknowledge their own vulnerability. Yeah, I need help. And I'm a human being who's been emotionally wounded. And there's nothing wimpy about our, our, our acknowledging that. But there's so much in the culture that almost forces people to ignore their own stresses and their own traumas. Yeah. Yeah, I, um, I would implore folks to grab the myth of normal. I, I think it's, it's definitely one of... I think one of the most important books a person could have on their bookshelf because it so clearly addresses, um, I think a, a word like trauma, I think in, in this present day and age, I think has become maybe very diluted to some people mm -hmm. and it gets thrown around a lot and it can be very like subjective and wishy-washy and like, what does that mean exactly? So, and, and then it's also, I think, you know, suggested by the book slash lots of other, other folks at a, a subconscious level running our lives. Yeah. You know, so, so to be able to investigate that and have a manual for that, you know, it's. Yeah. So unfortunately you're right. The, the word has become diluted and trivialized. Like I went to a movie and I was traumatized. No, you weren't. You were just upset, you know, or a more serious example last week at some event at Buckingham palace, some, idiotic 
former lady-in-waiting to Queen Elizabeth at this reception, went up to this black woman who's the head of a charity and started questioning her where she came from. And it was a, really a racist line of, you know, the woman was born in Britain. She was British born and bred, but she's black and she's got curly hair. So this woman kept poking at her. Where are you from? Where are you from anybody? But where are you from? You know? Now, it was, it was inappropriate, it was uh, racist, and she got wrongly chastised for it. I mean, this former lady-in-waiting. But the woman who it happened said, I was traumatized. No, she wasn't traumatized. She was upset. She was insulted. She was demeaned. But trauma means a wound that lasts for a long time. I don't think she suffered a wound that for a long time. As he was righteously and rightly upset, and angry and hurt, but angry, upset, and hurt is not the same as being traumatized. So yeah. that's on the one hand. So we use the word a bit too easily. But on the other hand, because trauma happens actually when we can't talk about it and there's nobody to share it with. And here she's sharing with the whole world, you know, rightly so, you know. So trauma is a wound. That's what it actually means. That the, the meaning of the word is a wound. It's a Greek word for wounding. Trauma is a psychological wound that we can't talk about. We might not even realize that we sustained it, but it affects our thinking, our psychology, how we feel about ourselves, how we understand the world, how we relate to other people. So it's a wound that lasts a long time. And childhood trauma in this culture is almost universal. I mean, it'd be unusual to meet somebody who had no trauma whatsoever. Of course, there's different grades of it and different types of it, but the wounding that then affects how we function and feel and interact and see the world, that happens to a lot of people and we don't recognize it and doctors don't recognize it, educators, the law doesn't recognize it, Individual individuals don't recognize it. And very often when you're acting in ways that later on you wonder what the hell made me do that, it was your trauma that made you do it. Yeah. And, when, and maybe you get triggered what gets triggered, it's your trauma that gets triggered. Yeah, yeah. In the latter part of your book, you get into um, integration of all of this and self-actualization and coming into a play place of like tools to be more whole. Yeah. And, and I, I think that it can be challenging to know what you don't know exactly. about yourself. And so how does a person begin the inquiry to... Uh, explore the aspects of the, themselves that they don't know that they don't know. It's not so much how, but why, you know? Mm. And so what usually happens to people is stuff doesn't work for them. Their marriage breaks down. Right. And they find themselves hating the person that they were so in love with. Um, or at least not being able to communicate with them. Or they develop anxiety or depression or they have frequent mishaps and accidents, or they get physically ill with chronic fatigue or fibromyalgia or chronic pain or migraines or stomach aches or dry mouth or back spasms or a more threatening physical illness like rheumatoid arthritis or multiple sclerosis or cancer. So something usually happens that wakes a person up and says, this life, ain't going the way I thought it would or the way I wanted to, what's going on? And that what's going on is the beginning. So usually it's some degree of suffering 
that impels us to start asking why. And then from there, there, so we're suffering. We've identified suffering exists. Yeah. So that, that's the first noble truth of the Buddha, you know? Yeah, exactly. That's the four noble truths. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the second truth is, if you want to be Buddhist about it, then I'm not, I'm not a Buddhist practitioner, is that there's a reason for the suffering. It has sources. So we can look upon our miseries, if you like, as random bad luck. I just married the wrong person. You know, oh, bad luck. Next time I'll marry the right person. You know, or this illness came along totally randomly. You know, why did, why did it have to happen to me? You know, um, in a sense that it shouldn't have happened to me, you know? Yeah. So we can take that attitude and let's just get rid of this thing. Or we can say, well, why did it happen to me? What, you know, was there something about my life that somehow unwittingly through no conscious fault of my own, um, this misfortune, this upset, this relationship, crisis, this illness, this depression, is it something about my life that these processes are representing? So that's the, you know, so the second, first is to realize that you're suffering. Secondly, is to actually give up the idea that this is random or just, you know, I mean, there are random things. I could be struck by lightning through the window as I'm talking to you. I didn't, what did I do to bring up the lightning on my head? Nothing, you know? So there are, there are events like that that happen to people. Yeah. Well, how, impor how important is language in our own storytelling? What do you mean by that? Why did this happen to me compared to why did this manifest itself compared to the various different iterations of how you could describe the, the things that, you know, take place in our lives? Okay. So what I interpret as you talk about language, I interpret it as attitude. So, mm. so I could say, why did this happen to me? Right. Or I could say, hmm, why did this happen to me? Right. I'm, I'm using the same words. If you wrote them on down on paper, they would look exactly the same. But the one attitude is one of rejection and resentment and uh, shouldn't have, you know? Like I know reality and I'm in charge of reality and it shouldn't be happening. I'm God, this shouldn't be happening, you know? The other is one of compassionate curiosity, mm. compassion towards the self and, and curiosity, well, you know, why did this happen? You know, I didn't want it to happen. I didn't deliberately make it happen. But is this somehow, in your words, this is manifesting my life? You know, so it's one of attitude. Are we going to be compassionate and curious about it? Or are we going to be resentful and um, resistant about it? That's, that's the difference here. And to get to that point where you are compassionate and curious would take a lot of vulnerability. And to get to a point of being willing to be vulnerable, would, you know, you have to be willing to be injured from the literal translation of it. Um, it's, it's very courageous to be vulnerable. Well, again, there's a two meanings of, meanings of the word vulnerable. <clears throat> like, as just as you say, vulnerable means it comes from wound, uh, you know, vulnerarius to wound, the Latin word for, for wounding. Human beings are all vulnerable. There's no such thing as, no, as an invulnerable human being. We're vulnerable from the moment we're conceived to the moment that we die. The question is, are we willing to acknowledge or not acknowledge our vulnerability? 
So when we say when somebody's willing to be vulnerable, it means that they're willing to acknowledge that they are vulnerable. People who are not willing to admit it are just as vulnerable. They can be wounded just as much, but they just don't want to be acknowledged because they need to have a sense of power, the ego, the sense of being on top of it, of being in control. And because they're too threatened, it's too painful to recognize that, no, life ain't like that as human beings. We are actually, as, as life creatures, as any life creature from plant to animal, we're all vulnerable. So the question is, are we willing to acknowledge that or do we want to deny it? And a lot of this culture is based on the denial of vulnerability. I'd like to take a moment and share something that I am incredibly proud of and excited for. It is the launch of the Align Method online program releasing January 15th. If you're a person that is experiencing any type of aches, pains, stiffness, or rigidity in your body, or perhaps one of your joints is preventing you from training the way that you would like to, in the program we break down exactly step by step how to recover full functional range of motion of every major joint in your body. So if you're experiencing stiff ankles, knee pain, hip mobility issues, shoulder mobility issues, or you'd like to strengthen and stabilize your midsection to prevent possible back injuries, which are 80% of all Americans will experience back pain in their lifetime, or perhaps you're tired of the same workouts you've been doing for God knows how long, the Align Method online program is your solution. I am so freaking excited to share this thing. Uh, the first week is completely free, so you can start the free trial the first week in that you will get a movement assessment, so you can actually break down and establish a baseline for where your movement is at. And I also share fundamental mobility techniques in that first week that will take any type of soft tissue practice that you do, whether it's using a ball or a foam roll or a band or just general yoga or stretching. These simple must know techniques will amplify your practice dramatically. So I want everyone to understand these techniques regardless. It is completely free and you can sign up at alignpodcast.com slash a m P. That's alignpodcast.com slash AMP for the free trial. We're launching it on January 15th. It will close on January 15th and uh, we can only accept 500 people in there. So it will absolutely fill up, which I'm very excited about. And we're doing a live Q&A at the end of each week for six weeks. If you have questions for me, uh, you want to be a part of a really radical community and you want to learn the principles that we break down in the book in this living, breathing, digital version. We all get to communicate and connect with each other. Alignpodcast.com slash AMP is your place. And if you do the free trial, you will also have access to the live Q&A regardless. So go through the free trial, see if it's a fit for you. And uh, I'm very confident that it will be, but regardless, you can check that thing out. You can go through the Q&A at the end and we'll get to perhaps even have a conversation there. So. Check us out over at alignpodcast.com slash AMP. Start that trial and I will see you guys soon. And then I feel like there, that, like this, there can be a bit of a pendulum effect of one side being the denial of vulnerability where it goes, veers into what one could call toxic masculinity. Yeah. Um, and then the other side could be excessive obsession with vulnerability and one's own victimhood and all of the, the things that hurt me and my mommy and my daddy and my ancestry. And just, you just, it's just this endless pit of digging into the, the wounds of the past. Yeah. And that's, that's another mistake. Um, in which people get trapped where they identify with their victim, where they identify with their, with the bad things that happened to them. They create an identity out of it. 
even to say that I'm a survivor identifies me with one particular experience, you know? Nobody is a survivor. That's not any, I mean, people survive things, but as a definition, I am a survivor. You know, that, that already um, limits me to one aspect of my experience. Now, it is true that what happened to and from your ancestors, you know, has a impact on you. The Bible wasn't wrong when they said that the mistakes and sins of the fathers are visited upon children to the fourth generation. Totally true, because we pass on our trauma from one generation to the next. And mommy and daddy, as much as they loved us, they hurt us. They couldn't help it because of their own stuff. So it's important to recognize that. But it's also important to recognize that that wasn't the trauma. The trauma is not what happened to us. That was, those were the traumatic events. The trauma is the wound that we sustained. Remember, trauma comes from a word for wound, the Greek word for wound. So trauma is not what happened to me 78 years ago or what happened to somebody three weeks ago. It's what happened inside them as a result of what happened, which means that the wound I'm carrying right now, now if I identify with the past events, I'm not willing to heal the wound. I want to hold on to it. But if I say, that's what happened then, those are the traumatic events, but the trauma is the wound I'm carrying now, that's there to be healed should you choose to go on that healing path. That's a very important distinction. Something about you that I think is incredibly invaluable to the, the health of the culture in our future uh, is your, uh, pr I would say, pretty almost like courageous position on the, the relationship uh, or leaning into the position of the relationship of our emotions and uh, physiological expression or disease. Hmm. And I, I think that that's, it's, it's like a, a bold thing to hang your hat on because it, it challenges a lot of like the, the quantitative norm that we have as a society. Mm -hmm. um, could you get into a bit of like, how did your perspective evolve on the relationship of um, our emotions and our physiological expression? Um, like what, what is that the perhaps association, potential association of anger and autoimmune disease? What is autoimmune disease? What is disease from your perception? Sure. Well, I hate to tell you, but not much courageous about it. You know, um, I'm only stating the obvious. Um, <laughs> so you and I did this breath exercise and that changed the physiology, it changed the acidity in, the, in our blood, you know, the whole tropic little demonstration that we did emotionally were you exactly the same person at the beginning of that exercise as you were afterwards um i would say no i wasn't emotionally speaking no so there was a change right yeah a distinct change tangible change yeah in me as well which means our physiology whether we go from physiology to emotions or emotions to physiology are inseparable so if I were to start screaming at you right now and, and, and yelling, you know, hurling a probium your way, would you just have bad emotions in the abstract? Would that change your physiology? Yeah. It would change your physiology. Your muscles would tense probably and your heart rate would change. I mean, so it's just obvious that emotions are inseparable from physiology. That's the way we're designed, you know? 
because it's all one system. So I'm not as courageous as, as it seems. All I'm saying is stating the obvious. And, and Socrates, 2,400 years ago, ancient Greece, you know what he said? He said the problem with the doctors of today, of today, he said, 2,400 years ago, that they separate the mind from the body. Yeah. So this mind-body separation has been going in the Western culture for a long time. Now, in 1939, there was a famous lecturer at Harvard, a medical doctor, like me from Eastern Europe, and he said in at Harvard, this is published in the Journal of the Medical Association in 1940. He said that emotional factors are at least as important in the causation of illness as physical ones, and they have to be at least as important in the healing. 1938. 19, in, the 1900s, in the 19th century, famous physicians said that multiple sclerosis, rheumatoid arthritis, breast cancer, all had emotional substrates. Very famous physicians. Um, still revered in the history of medicine. Um, in 1977, Dr. George Engel, great American physician psychiatrist, he said that human beings are biopsychosocial creatures. Our biology is inseparable from a social and psychological dynamics. There's nothing, you know, and, and we've had tens of thousands of research papers saying the obvious, saying, saying the same thing. All I do is I present the evidence for it, you know? Um, yeah. and now, here's the point. If our physiology is inseparable from our psychology, which it isn't, then it also means that psychological events are gonna have a physical impact. So, women with severe symptoms of PTSD, they have doubled the risk of ovarian cancer. Men who are sexually abused in childhood, they have tripled the rate of heart attacks. Women who are sexually abused in childhood have much higher rates of uh, endometriosis and irritable bowel syndrome. Stress and trauma have been linked to multiple sclerosis, rheumatoid arthritis, and other autoimmune conditions, and to malignancy. The repression of anger has been linked to autoimmune disease and to malignancy. I could go on and on and on and on. And we even know physiologically how this all works, because the mind and body are scientifically inseparable. So, you asked about autoimmune disease? In autoimmune disease, the immune system attacks the body itself so that our immune system actually attacks the system it's meant to protect. This is a, it's as if the American army invaded the United States with hostile intent. Um, that's what autoimmune disease is. Now, why would it do that? Well, healthy anger. Let's just do a bit of a mini exercise here. If I were to start insulting you now or somehow emotionally being hurtful to you. What would be a healthy response on your part? Anger. Healthy anger, right? And or, 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 or shut down. Yeah, yeah. You, well, you'd even get the hell out of here. Yeah. Or you'd say, no, you don't talk to me that way. Now, healthy yeah. anger is a... Or, I'm, or, I may, or I may collapse and go into like learned helplessness. That's only if you were helpless. Like but if you, yeah. weren't help, if you weren't helpless. Yeah. If you weren't helpless, you would say, no, you can't do this to me. Yeah. You won't, no. Healthy anger is a boundary defense. Now, what is the role of the immune system? Boundary defense. Exactly. To keep out, <laughs> to keep out toxins and, and unhealthy bacteria. Let in what is nurturing and healthy. Nutrients, healthy bacteria. Keep out what isn't. Healthy anger, Im immune system, they have the same role. Now, 
not only do they have the same role, they're part and parcel of the same system. They're not different systems. It's all one, according to modern science. Mm -hmm. Therefore, when you disable your emotions, you're also disabling your immune system. So people that repress healthy anger have re re diminished um, resistance against malignant cells and against, uh, and, and even, and even now if you didn't express your anger towards me, it wouldn't disappear if you repressed it. It's not that the anger would evaporate to the clouds. It would be inside you yeah. and it may turn against you in a form of depression, which is, by the way, what depression is, pushing something down, depressing it, depressing healthy anger. So if you're doing that, you can also depress your immune system. And just as that healthy anger can not expressed and not processed can turn against you, so can the immune system turn against you. Yeah, the reason that you, I would suggest you taking such a strong position on that is, is, is bold. And I would say, you know, I don't know, courageous might not be the, the, the perfect word, but at least bold and meaningful is it starts to nudge against people's religion in a way hmm. where it could, awesome. I think that that, or, or maybe there could be a similar effect of what you're telling me is that I have some level of sovereignty in this disease or some level of responsibility. What my belief has been is that there's this thing out there right. that got me yeah. And I need to find somebody or something to attack it and fight it off. Those are two very distinct lanes of lanes of thought. Absolutely. So first of all, well, thanks for pointing that distinction. First of all, what would if I if you just consider for a moment, what would you rather believe? The first, the first, the the, the first one. That responsibility. Yeah. So so responsibility by the way is not the same as blame or guilt or fault. Yeah. Okay, because you didn't know you were repressing your anger. You repressed your anger because you were trained to do so as a child. You know, you didn't do it deliberately. Yeah. But once you realize it, now you have some sovereignty, as you said. You have some agency. You're not just a helpless thing. And, and what you said about illness, so I have a pen. I'm holding it up now. I can put it down. I can throw it, open it, close it, write with it, discard it. It's not part of me. It's got nothing to do with me, just an object that I have. If I say I have multiple sclerosis or I have depression, we're making the same assumption that there's this thing called multiple sclerosis with a life of its own, with a character of its own, totally independent from me, just like the pen. Or I have this thing called depression that's got its own characteristics, totally independent of me. Or I can see them not as things that I have, but as processes that are occurring inside me as a result of dynamics I haven't been aware of in my life. And if I explore those dynamics, I get to have some agency and some sovereignty. Mm -hmm. So now my, this perspective is A, much more scientific, and B, it gives you possibilities that the other one just denies you altogether. Yeah, yeah I went to Greece a, f a handful of months ago and we sailed around to different islands out there and one of them went to the island that i think asclepius is considered oh, the long life the blue zone yeah well so that you know, well we went through some areas like that as well but the, but the, this particular island i don't remember the name but asclepius is the the i believe the greek god of medicine 
and oh, okay. she like lives on this island or lived on this island or however his energy is still there based off of people that you know are in that belief system and one of the things or there were several things i found really like stand out interesting but one was the hospitals were placed either right beside or very close to theaters interesting and so and and when you go into and and the reason for that is they 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 considered theater and tapping into emotions tapping into that 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 deeper expression that like that you know they call it the soul you know to emote is almost like a like a scalpel in a way to open up psychic space to allow room for the, yeah. you know the, the purging of whatever whatever the heck's inside there that's that's manifesting a mm. a, a physical mm. expression mm. and they would have when, with going into a hospital the the beginning would be, there would be really beautiful music there would be tubs to bathe in there would be art so that was a really big thing mm. the actual the uh imbibement you could say of, of art or, or or visually taking in art would have an effect on the physiology of the person if you were to say that in modern, like 2022, I think a lot of uh, really smart, high-level academics would roll their eyes. Yeah, well, that's because academics live above their necks, you know. Um, right. They're so disconnected. Now that you mention it, when I visited the Parthenon in, in Athens, there was a theater and very nearby, there was a temple to Aeschylus as well. Yeah, so yeah. The, um, yeah. Why do you why do you why do you think it is that there there was a divergence a, away from that and almost like what seems to be an excessive leaning um, into the quantifiable into I mean I guess all of this is quantifiable yeah. but you know leaning into say Cartesian philosophies and Newtonian mechanics and our belief if it's if it's more nebulous or or invisible it's like I don't I don't I don't want to trust that. Whereas for a long time, that was, you know, a major part of our, our philosophy as, as people. Yeah. Uh, well, part of the reason is, is good in a certain sense in that Western thought and science and, and um, this linear left brain thinking has some terrific achievements to its credit. I mean, we've discovered a lot in the last 300 years yeah. or more, you know, through the investigations and methodologies of western science and that's amongst the highest achievements of of humankind um we've done it at a cost we've forgotten the other side of things and uh, now we're finding that science actually proves the other side of things so candace pert who was uh, a great american uh, neuroscientist you know researcher she's the one who identified the uh, opiate receptors in the human body and and she called the opiates molecules of emotion. Hmm. And uh, so the physiological, these physiological entities actually carry the emotional valence. And uh, I quote her, I think, in the second chapter of the book, where in the myth of normal, where she says that science doesn't recognize these, Im- these immaterial things like emotions. Mm-hmm. And yet emotions are inseparable from the physiology as she did so much to, to prove and in the decades since her work. So much work has been done on that. So um, on the one hand, there were the amazing achievements of Western science. On the other hand, in pursuing those achievements, become further and further separated from the other reality. And the, I'd say the tragedy these days is that 
that's no longer tenable scientifically because now we have the science to know to show that those immaterial things the emotions that Candice Pert talked about are actually very much rooted in the material world and they have material manifestations and, and those interconnections are not controversial scientifically speaking so really what the problem with western medicine these days it's way behind the science it's way beyond science it can no longer claim to be a, it's it's you talked about religion before i was trying to understand what you meant by that but you may have meant ideology like any kind of a, a fixed belief yeah that, that that we hold on to and 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 behold precious and yeah this mind-body unity the science of it totally threatens the western ideology which is why we don't want to give it up. Do you believe that, I, I, I'd imagine you're familiar with the book, uh, The Master and His Emissary, written by, I think it's Shane McGilkey. Yeah, about the left, left and right brain thing. Yeah, and the suggestion in, in that is is that the uh, the the left hemisphere, kind of more yeah. like the analytical yeah. aspect, which obviously they're all integrated, and you know, I think it's probably, that's maybe like overly simplistic definition, but yeah. that left hemisphere, hemispherical model of thinking tends to overshadow the right hemisphere because the right is one of listening it's not one of shouting and it, it, it and, and and it's also the male female thing because we tend to associate the right brain with the so-called feminine qualities of holistic seeing yeah. connections and seeking peace and seeking harmony so i i wonder from your perception do you see a future where is the left hemispherical model of thinking or the more masculine more analytical more structured you know, quantifiable, hold it in my hand or I don't trust it. Is it too big to fail at this point? Will it just keep on overshadowing that softer, more nurturing, listening side of, of us as a cultural whole? Well, it's failing, isn't it? I mean, look, look where it's led us, you know, to the brink. Yeah. I mean, well, too big, too big to fail in the sense is it, is it just going to keep perpetuating itself to our well, own destruction? It, it, it will want to because it's associated with a lot of ego and it's very much associated with the corporate globalized capitalist system that we live in, which doesn't want to go away particularly fast. But here's the problem, is that if you look at human development, both as a species and also as the development of an individual child, the, the properly speaking, the right brain develops first. We had those circuits long before we had intellectual circuits. And what happens in this society, that precisely because children's needs are not met for healthy development. The right brain does not develop in a healthy way so that mm. the left brain comes to dominate it. If the right brain, the right brain really is the template, the, um, or, or the temple of our, of our minds. And if the development is, runs along healthy lines, then the right brain will be grounded and connected and the left brain will come along as its servant. Mm -hmm. And so that, that brilliant li linear analytical um, left brain of ours cannot serve a coherent harmonious purpose. But if ch child development is as troubled as it is in our culture, the right brain is all confused and it, it, it it can't serve, serve as a healthy template. And now the intellect starts to serve disturbed emotions. So that now the left brain is serving emotions that are grounded in trauma and stress, rather than the emotions that are 
grounded and peaceful and harmonious. That's what the problem is. There'd be nothing wrong with the left brain in a harmonious mind. In fact, it'd be a nothing but pure value. Yeah, the trouble is two two sides of the, two sides of a coin. Yeah. So, is it too big? I hope not. I, I mean, for the for the future of humanity and for the benefit of human beings, and I hope it's not. How has your relationship to death evolved? Or I don't. I, for some reason, I have I have like a, a strange resistance around the, the word death because I don't know that it's a, a like a it doesn't feel complete yeah. to me because I feel like death denotes completion ending hmm. and i don't i'm not sh i don't i'm not completely convinced and this could just be semantics but i'm not completely convinced that that's what that experience is hmm. i know that you worked in, in palliative care and you've been around that quite a bit hmm. and i have a, i have a, a a hunch that much of the resistance and contraction and dis-ease that we experience as a you know individual for myself and as culturally is an, an unacceptance or perhaps fear around that that thing we call death. Hmm. What do you? What are you? What is your relationship to death? How has it evolved? Um, hmm. How do you think the, our relationship to death as a cultural whole is? If you were to be able to hmm. describe that, well, I, I don't have any particular belief or perspective that tells me anything about what happens after my body expires. And by the way, expires, what does that mean? You breathe out and you don't breathe in again. That's what expiration means. You know? So yeah. after I expire for the last time, after I breathe out for the last time, I have no sense that what's going to happen or what is going to happen. My own particular belief is that, you know, that's it. I'm gone, you know? No. My memory will live on, the energies that I've released in the world, they'll, they'll persist, you know, and, and all that. But as a physical entity, you know, I'll literally I'll return to the earth, you know. Mm -hmm. I participated in a sweat lodge two weeks ago with some indigenous friends of mine here in British Columbia, and they drag in the rocks, you know. Have you been in a sweat lodge? Yeah, I've done several. Yeah, okay. So, they, you know, they bring in the rocks and you know what they say. They say, we're bringing the grandfathers and the grandmothers. Yeah. And, and and so they have such a clear sense that we came from the earth. Those are our grandparents. We came from them, you know. And so for them, it's very eternal and very connected, you know. Um, and, and, and as far as I'm concerned, after I expire, for the last time, which is what we call death, he expired. Um, I'm going to return to the earth. Th that's as much as I can tell you, in terms of my own belief. How do I feel about it? Uh, look, I'm 70, I'm, I'm about to turn 79 in a month. It's, I think maybe a month from today, actually. And uh, that means that the Grim Reaper is one step closer to arriving at my door, you know? I don't spend much time thinking about it, but, you know, I, on the whole, I'd rather hang on for a while longer, you know? Um, am I afraid of it? I don't know, because I'm not confronted with it.
you know, I won't really know. I, whatever I tell you now is not going to be that meaningful because, I mean, how do I really know, you know? Um, what, I what I do know is that dying can be a profoundly meaningful experience for people. Hmm. And I've seen people attain spiritual realizations. I've seen people reconnect with their true selves. I've seen people be grateful for the illness that killed them because it brought them face-to-face -face with their true selves for the first time in their lives. I don't recommend having to have a terminal illness to get to know yourself that deeply, but hmm. just saying what I witnessed as a physician, I've seen families heal literally at the last minute, you know? So hmm. there are, you know, the, there's a kind of art to dying, which if it's pursued, I think can be very liberating. Death itself, I'll tell you, I'll tell you then, you know, coming into you with, with just before I start the death rattle and then I'll. <laughs> Maybe shoot me a text. Uh, <laughs> no, you know what? I've already, you know how it's going to look like. I've been in so many documentaries. I've been in so many documentaries recently uh, for this, that, and the other. Uh, so my interview is that my vision, my death is going to look like something like this. I'll be lying on the bed. I'll be doing the death rattle, you know, and some filmmakers gonna say, Gabo, that was great, but would you mind doing it again from the left side? Because <laughs> that, that's, that's what my death is gonna look like. I wanna take a moment and share about something that has truly made a massive difference in my life as of recent. That is going through the diagnostic process with LifeForce. LifeForce is a health optimization company that is bringing a personalized approach to help you take control of your health. It all starts with the LifeForce Diagnostic, a comprehensive blood test that measures over 40 biomarkers that impact your mental and physical health, from your nutrient levels to hormone balance to key risk factors for disease and much more. The LifeForce Diagnostic gave me a snapshot of precisely what the heck is happening inside of my body. Then the next step, I jumped on a call with a LifeForce functional medicine doctor, and she was absolutely amazing. I asked her a whole gamut of questions and uh, I was probably a pretty annoying patient, I would say, because I just kept asking questions and she kept having answers. She was incredibly welcoming, incredibly sweet, and just really brilliant with the information. Um, so she mapped out a very clear, concise plan uh, for me. Uh, she was working with me. I think it, I just felt very supported the whole time. Uh, some of the things that we saw there was a deficit with me was particularly DHEA. Uh, and then also omegas. So they got me on a couple nutraceuticals and I swear to God, um, I, since starting these guys, I feel um, almost uncomfortable saying it like this because it's an ad, but it truly made a massive difference. My word recall, my energy levels, my libido um, has, has significantly shifted since starting. So I'm freaking excited and I would absolutely implore any of y'all to at least get the diagnostic done so you can get that snapshot of what's going on inside of your blood, what is going on inside of your biology so you're not guessing. You know exactly what's happening and then you can start making decisions from there. If you'd like to get 15% off, uh, you can go to mylifeforce.com. Com. That's M-Y-L-I-F-E-F-O-R-C-E dot com. And then use Align code at checkout for 15% off. And that is a very meaningful 15% off as well. So I 
can't recommend it enough. I think you guys are going to really dig it. I think it's going to be really amazing for your own health journey. Jump over to mylifeforce.com and use the align code for 15% off. I want to take a moment and share about something that has absolutely knocked my socks off and I was quite skeptical about in the beginning that is utilizing exogenous ketones as a fantastic source of fuel as mental clarity and it also reduces appetite which is kind of an interesting side effect as well um, i've done a whole podcast episode all about the benefits of it i really love using it before a podcast episode i just drank a bottle before reading this ad actually and it's it does an interesting thing it induces that similar sensation that you'd have after doing an extended fast and your body transitioning over into ketosis. And uh, it's like a almost euphoric, upbeat, energetic, cognitively clear sensation. It's highly recommended. I would I would just, just give it a try. Uh, if you don't absolutely love it, no worries, you can get your money back. But I think it's one of those things to, it's supportive to have in your toolkit. Uh, so the company is called HVMN. Uh, the drink is called Ketone IQ. I recorded a whole podcast with the founder of the company and got into the deep details of what the heck is going on with this. And I think you guys are going to dig it. So go to HVMN.com and then at checkout, type in the code ALIGN dash 20 and you will save 20% off on your purchase that's hvmn.com and then at checkout type in a-l-i-g-n dash 20 and you will receive 20% off your purchase I, I recently um, completed a darkness retreat have you ever heard of this geez some guy sent me an email about this um, what's his name Scott. Okay. I think he said, is it Bernstein? I don't know. Uh, it's in Oregon, so it's kind of near yeah, you. He said, he, he, no, tell me about it because he invited me and I said, sorry, I don't have the time for this. And uh, Yeah. But, yeah. But tell me. Uh, tell me. Well, so I, I would... I would I would presume a darkness retreat is in some ways, before going into it, I felt like I had this interesting like symbolic sensation of like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to die. Like a, yeah. a part of me is going to die. Yeah. Um, which is really beautiful and gratifying yeah. and like a little, a little kind of scary in a way. Yeah. And I might've just been overdramatic. Uh, but the experience of being in darkness, I was there for uh, five day, five nights and four days. Good. So it's going to end up being exactly 108 hours, which is kind of interesting with like the Buddhist beads and whatnot, mm. prayer beads. Um, and but during that time frame, what was interesting about it is I, I think we have so much distraction in our daily life. Yeah. And it's it's great. We live in a circus, you know, and we can pull on different levers and we can you know, there's so much stuff, which yeah. is which is really, you know, can be fun, but it can also be a just life can end up being one much more than this, but one big distraction away from yeah. a deeper relationship with ourselves. And I feel like it's an interesting thing of a person on their deathbed. It's almost like expedites the process of like, hey, this is who you are. Yeah. You know, all this stuff goes away. And I think that experience of, of darkness for extended time, you have nothing but yourself. You have nothing but your, your subconscious starting to burble up to the surface and then you experience it. And it's for me, very uncomfortable for, you know, most of it, a good chunk of it. Uh, and then I scream and I laugh and I role play and I roll around the ground and I cry and I yell and I meditate in stillness and feel connected with everything. And then I scream again. And it was just this burbling of emotion and, um, hmm. 
a lot of like self acceptance mm. in the in the process, um, and and just deeper, uh, almost like a deeper knowing of myself, or a, an opportunity for like a deeper introduction to layers of myself that I've just been too distracted to witness. And did did some did some of that stay with you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like this, like I had a cry this morning. Um, I, I've I've been very cryy in a in a great way. Yeah, it feels so fucking good. Cleansing. Yeah, yeah. it's like I'm almost like laughing as I'm crying because I'm so grateful wow. that something sad or something happy or something I'm grateful for, or mm. my parents or just whatever. Is like yeah. recently in in the darkness, I was in one of the things I was like envisioning. I might even cry as I'm talking. About. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna like, try to. But I was envisioning my parents holding me as a little baby, mm-hmm. and just like how much they loved me. Mm. It's such a. It's such an. And it's an interesting thing. And I'm like emoting right now as I think about it. But I think that that's such a, a root wound for so many people. I think perhaps myself included, of a feeling of like not being enough, not being worthy of love, mm. and to, to have the spaciousness to come back and just open up one's vulnerability and kind of put the shield down you know, even temporarily to start to kind of cleanse some of those aspects. Very meaningful. You know, when I actually got an invite from the organizer and I'm going to revisit it now. And, and, oh, cool. and I said, um, I don't have time and so on, but you know what? Yeah. It's not the time. I'm actually afraid of it. Yeah. There's a lot of reasons to not have the time for it. Yeah. 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 I think it's, um, what, what do you think would come up for you? I don't know. But, <laughs> but the, the, the prospect of being without distraction and activity for that length of time, I, I just find intimidating. Yeah, yeah. That's I mean, that's yeah, my experience as well. The interesting thing with it is, is every day that passes, it it, it also created almost like a new relationship to time in a way, because mm-hmm. for the most part, most people's time is like it's drifting. You know, it's sand through their fingertips. Yeah, yeah. You know, forty years go by, and you're like, oh my god, what the hell happened? That's right. Uh, in that scenario, it's the complete opposite, where a minute feels like twenty minutes. That's what I'm afraid of. And and but but within that, at the end of each day, in in my experience with it, it was very. Um, it felt like I really put in work. Like it felt like I was like, wow, that was gratifying. I did it. There was a sense of resilience, the sense of like, you know, and the time passed. I didn't die. I didn't explode. I didn't implode. Like here I am. Now, are you completely in darkness for, for all that time? Yes. Are you on your own or with other people? On your own. So they come once a day around five o'clock uh, and there's a little, I'll put something up on, on YouTube and do a, a, a podcast about it as well. Um, I haven't done that yet, but uh, they come in and there's like a little box. You open up one side of the box and they open up one side of the box. They put the food for the whole day in and then they close it and then you can open it up and you eat in the dark. And there's a, a bathtub, which was incredibly valuable for me. That was like the deepest like um, meditations, I guess you could say, uh, of, that I had for sure was was sitting in the bath in, in the darkness and um, just allowing it's it's all of Buddhism and all of like the most of like the philosophical texts of old essentially manifest themselves. You're like, aha, like this is are you in a, this is what they're talking about. In a cubicle, a home, a room, a, a cave. It's it's like a studio, a small studio apartment essentially. You know, so there's a bed, a small space with a, like a yoga mat and whatnot. There's a fireplace. I would highly recommend doing it in the winter if you do it, just because it's you know I think more convenient. Um, and then a, 
they stoke the fireplace, obviously. And then a little nook to meditate. Mm-hmm. I brought it. I brought a drum and a Native American flute that was really helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a bathtub in the corner of that room, and then a very small bathroom, and that's it. Okay. Well, thanks for telling me. I'll. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. I let that percolate. I let that percolate. Yeah, let it, I let that. Yeah. Let it, let it let it percolate. Um, I another question I had for you is something that I think is very common is more of like a uh, a Thomas Hobbesian perspective on human nature, which yeah. his famous quote is something like um, something along the lines of like ancestral life. I don't think I think I'm adding that part, but he said that life is short nasty and brutish brutish yeah short nasty and brutish you know what i think he should uh, lo- lonely as well i think he, he added in there short, nasty and brutish he said but you know what you know what he should should have said what should he have said life is short nasty and british because <laughs> because because he was talking about the conditions of britain during the industrial revolution and the misery that was inflicted on most people and the disease that was inflicted on most people he thought he was talking about human nature and human life. He was talking about, he was projecting his own misery onto human nature and the misery. And we make this mistake all the time is that we think that the conditions in our society, what I call the myth of normal, are actually healthy and natural. No, this has nothing to do with human nature. If you look at, you know, like if you wanted to study a, ze- a, a, a zebra, you can conclude that the zebra is a striped horse-like animal that lies around the whole day, gets up occasionally to eat and drink, and then lies down again. And maybe walks around a little bit. You could conclude that that's what a zebra is if you study the zebra in a zoo behind the cage. Mm-hmm. But if you study the zebra and its natural habitat, you come to a totally different set of conclusion about what a zebra behaves like. Same with human beings. If you want to study human beings, you know where you study them? Study them in the environment where we evolved. And we evolved over millions and hundreds of thousands of years as people living out there in nature, not in big cities and all this kind of stuff, but in small band, hunter-gatherer groups, deeply connected to nature, communally connected to each other, collaborating in order to survive. Children were held by parents the whole day. Children were around adults the whole day. And values were not of individualistic greed, but of giving and connecting. And this has been studied up the yin-yang, both with um, artifacts of of human beings and also with indigenous people in their natural habitats and also the few remaining small band hunter-gatherer groups that our civilization hasn't yet extirpated. And these are the conclusions uh, over and over and over again. That's what human nature was. You know, so the real thing about human nature is you can't talk about human nature as sort of a concrete, defined thing. We have certain human needs and human potentials. And how those needs are met will determine how those potentials unfold. So yes, in a society that robbed people of their lands and forced them to go into factories and uh, tremendous inequality, life was short, nasty, and, and, and British. But that says yeah. nothing about human nature. And, and even in, in our society, like when, the, when somebody, somebody does something selfish or, or greedy or exec, ag- aggressive, what do we say? Oh, that's just human, human nature. nature. That's just human nature. Now, 
if somebody does something kind and somebody does something kind or generous, open hearted, do we say, oh, that's just human nature? No, we don't. And yet, you ask most human beings, when do you feel more at ease inside yourself, more peace, more visceral sense of connection and, and just joy? Yeah. When you've done something selfish, greedy, and grasping, or when you've been kind and generous? What will people say? Oh, it's when I've been giving and, 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 and open-hearted. Yeah. It's when I feel most myself. So this, yeah, idea, okay. this idea of human nature is utter scientific garbage is what it you, is. You don't, you don't get PTSD by helping an old lady across the street. No. You don't, you know, you don't. Yeah. The, the something I, I have a, a, a hard question for you. Do you believe that evil exists? Dr. Gabor? Not, not in the abstract. Evil things happen and people do evil things, but I don't think there's an abstract evil that sort of permeates the world. Like in, in like, like, oh, he is evil in an absolute way. Because no. that is something that there are people that would stand by that belief system. Well, there are some people that almost imper, imp, um, personify evil. Mm -hmm. We can name Hitler, for example. Or Dahmer would be a good example. Where he kind of identifies with, yeah. I, I think that I am, I am evil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we can, say, we can say about people that they almost personify evil. But is that their essence? It's the essence of their actions. And their impact on others, which are destructive and murderous and horrible. But th were they born like that? No, they weren't. If you look at the infancies in childhood, horrible abuse and trauma in every case. And that's what distorts people towards evil. So you can't, you know, like, we're not born with it. We're born with certain needs and certain potentials. And what happens, how we then express those, we're born with a potential for evil in a sense of evil actions. That's a potential that's in us. But when is that potential realized? When we're cut off from ourselves, when we're hurt, we're full of anger, resentment, rage, hatred, and absolute narcissism when we don't care about anybody else. Just the satisfaction of our own urges. Nobody's born like that. Nobody's born like that. And if you look at the research, on violent killers and mass murderers, they're all traumatized people, severely traumatized people. That doesn't mean that everybody traumatized becomes a mass murderer, but every mass murderer was traumatized. Yeah, I I, I align with that idea. I've had many a, a debate around that. Um, do you feel that all people at the root are, are good or is language uh, like a, a misfit here or barrier? Is it, it's not good or evil, I, I, I would think. What, what is the root of, I guess the question is, what is human nature? Which might be redundant, but. But that's what I'm saying. There's no definable human nature as such. There's human needs. Yeah. And um, mm. if we're brought up as we're meant to be brought up, we'll be good. It's that simple, you know? How are we, how are we meant to be brought up? Okay, we're meant to be brought up with love, with acceptance for who we are in the context of a very safe, secure attachment relationship with the nurturing caregivers. I mean, how is a little monkey meant to be brought up? Yeah, like you the model monkey experiments. How, how's a, a little puppy meant to be brought up? By a mother who nurtures them and feeds them and protects them and cares for them as long as they need that. Once they become mature, the mother can let go. 
human beings is the same thing. Now, when you distort human development by not meeting our needs for secure, loving, accepting, unconditionally um, available attachment relationships, when we're not allowed to feel our emotions that they come that may come up naturally, when we are not allowed to play freely and spontaneously and creatively, uh, when our parents impose their needs on us rather than meeting our needs because they're so stressed and traumatized, then our development is distorted. On top of that, when we're hurt and traumatized, and, 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 and you know, as, as happens to so many people, you're going to get all kinds of negative outcomes. But that's because human nature is more definable in t- terms of our needs than in terms of our actions. And if our needs are met, our actions will be good. If they're not, they will not be. And the more frustrated our needs are and the more trampled on we are, the more likely that we're going to act in ways. And, you know, Edith Egger, I don't know if you know the name, she's a psychotherapist in her 90s now. She went to Auschwitz probably on the same train that my grandparents went. She was 16 years old. And I was just talking to her a few days ago. And she's written this book uh, called The Choice. And um, bless her soul. And she goes to Berchtesgaden or Berghof in the, in the Bavarian Alps where Hitler used to have his residence to forgive Hitler. And she says not to make it okay what he did, but to let go of the resentment that she's carrying to liberate herself. And she says that we all have a Nazi in us. It's not that we're all Nazis. We all have a Nazi in us. I have a Nazi in me, I can tell you. You know, and potentially, depending on what feeds it and how I take care of myself or how much work I do myself, how much insight I have, you know, that part of me can show up, you know, and, and the same is true for any human being. So, but these are potentials. Yeah. These are potentials. And, and the question is, what conditions are required to bring out our goodness, our loving nature, our connectedness? And what conditions are going to make us selfish, aggressive, self-aggrandizing, grandiose, denying reality, um, using others for our purposes? Nobody's yeah. born. Nobody's born with any of that. Yeah, it feels like the a, a parent could easily make their child a, a, a prisoner to their expectations. Yeah. Which is a, is a really... You know, it's very, it's a very sad position, but the parents not um, wrong or bad. They're just they're they're acting out their experience through their own traumas and all the way back. And as I make the point in the myth of normal, parents are acting like so, the, the agents of society. Yeah, You're making kids fit into a society that is profoundly sick. You know. Yeah. So the role, the the social role of parents, not that they realize it, is to make people fit into a culture that is actually very unhealthy for them. And the other, the other part that you discussed in the myth of normal around the childhood needs was, and we've already tapped on this a little bit, but I think it's really important to touch on again is uh, a child needs the freedom to be able to experience all emotions. Yeah. And that's, that's back to the the darkness experience. That would be something where it's like, it's a, a very, Mm. uh, sincere witnessing of emotions and there's nothing to do yeah. other than be with it. You've no, there, there aren't any other options really. Yeah. And eventually a person inevitably would come to a place of uh, 
just accepting at all. Mm -hmm. But if we come to a place where we accept certain aspects of our selves and then mm -hmm. we deny other aspects, what, what happens to, to a person? Well, so in this society, um, people, kids are often forced not to have certain emotions. Mm -hmm. So, um, very famous psychologist who I quote in the book, who in his mega-selling book says that an angry child should made, made, should be made to sit by themselves till they come back to normal. The assumption is that anger in a child is not normal. The hell it isn't. Nature gave us a, an anger circuit in our brain. That has to exercise itself. And if, you, and if you're a good parent, you're going to frustrate your kid. Not because you deliberately set out to frustrate them, because the kid's going to come to you at one, two years of age and says, I want a cookie before dinner. And if you're a good parent, you're not going to give them a cookie before dinner. Yeah. You know? Or you're not giving yeah. them a... And then the child will get angry. Now, if you follow the psychological advice, now you're going to be on your own. If you're going to be angry, you're going to lose me until you come back to normal, which is until you give up your emotion. Well, the child will learn then, if I want to belong to daddy or mommy, which I need to, to survive, I better give up my connection to my emotions. I'm going to have to push them down. That's not conscious, but that's the impact. You're going to depress your emotions. What's another word for depressing something? You push it down. What's another word for pushing down? Depression. Where do you think depression comes from? It comes from kids not being able to, allow, to experience their emotions. Now, I said they need to be allowed to experience all their emotions, not to throw plates through the kitchen window, not to hit their siblings. I'm not talking about the acting out of emotion in negative ways. I'm talking about the experience of emotion. And if a child is allowed to have the emotion and is held by the parent, they'll move through that emotion and they'll learn to regulate themselves. Otherwise, they just learn to repress themselves and to disconnect from their authentic selves. And in this society, Parents are so often given advice about how to get this kid to behave this way or that way. That's not the question. The question is, what does the child need? Because the child whose needs are met, they can be automatically good for the parent. They're going to automatically want to belong with the parent and follow the, you know, discipline, this word discipline. Usually we equate it with punishment. I discipline my child. Well, that's not what the word means. What's a disciple? Follower. Somebody follow. Why do they follow you? Because mm. they're afraid of you. Typically not. Why Typically do they? Not. Why do they follow you? They look. They look up to you. Why? Because you. There's some qualities in you that they would like to have within themselves. They as they aspire to be. Exactly, and because they trust you. Mm. They didn't, you know, so if, if you, and so Jesus had disciples because he loved them and they loved him. So they followed him. Children will be disciples of the adults if they're loved and if, if, and if they trust, you don't need to punish them, you know? So in this society, it's all about behaviors, not about understanding the child. So we get so many things wrong. 
So it's not a question of being permissive. That's not permissive is not helpful to the child. No, you don't let them throw a plate through the kitchen window. You don't let them hit their siblings. You're not permissive. But you do provide discipline in the healthiest sense of the word. Do you believe that culturally our definition of depression is correct? No. Uh, we see depression as a as a genetic disease of the brain. We forget or we don't know, and the average medical student doesn't even learn that the brain, including the neurochemicals in the brain, develop an interaction with the environment, of which the most important determinant is the emotional relationship with the nurturing adults. Hmm. So what brain chemicals will have, and, and what receptors, and what connections, and circuits, and networks, depends on our early experiences. And so this theory that depression is caused by a lack of serotonin in the brain, which is what the working theory has been for 50 years almost, is scientifically, has got zero evidence, none, nothing, zilch, nada, you know, nothing. Um, I used to believe in it as a physician. I, you know, I used to tell people, you're depressed, you don't even have serotonin, here's some Prozac. Now here's the thing, sometimes the Prozac can work, it helped me at some point. So I'm not talking about throwing out Western medicine altogether, but let's get realistic about it. People are depressed because at some point they learn to push down their emotions. Why did they learn to push down their emotions? Because their environment couldn't tolerate their emotions. And they had to belong to the environment without which they couldn't have survived. They had to disconnect from themselves, push down their emotions, and now they are depressed. And so you may or may not take medication, which may or may not help you. But at the same time, get some help in understanding how you've suppressed yourself, pushed yourself down, and learn how to be authentic. Then you won't get depressed. Yeah, it feels like, and we can we can wrap up soon. Um, I, it, it feels like so much of our physiological expression and internal experience is based around this, the stories that we tell ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the things I, I believe I got this from your book, uh, The Myth of Normal. Uh, it was Australian research suggested that having no job was better on a person's health outcomes than having a job that they they felt disrespected in or they felt like like a low 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 position oh yeah so and there's so I'm, lots of research in there around that lots of meta-analyses and various different different things to that tune yeah no that's in the book uh unemployment like leon Mu leon um elon musk Two weeks ago, fired 7,500 people just overnight. You're gone. You got no say in the matter. Your livelihood is gone. Now, unemployment is stressful for people. And actually, it's bad for people's health in terms of heart disease and other conditions, particularly in older people. But a bad job is even worse for people's mental health than no job at all, according to re uh, some Australian research, just as you point out. So which is just another way of saying that our social relationships and our social circumstances have a lot to do with our health. So when we look at health issues in individuals, you can't just isolate the health issue to that particular organ in an isolated individual. We're looking at a set of social relationships. Yeah, the last thing, and then we'll, we can wrap up. Um, I'm, at the end, I oftentimes, if I remember, I ask a question that we put in the Align community. Yeah. Um, so I'll share where people can find that. But my, my question 
for that is what is the role of play in our mental, emotional, and physical health? And are we getting enough play as a culture? If you guys would like to hear the response from Dr. Gabor, you can jump over to alignpodcast.com slash community. It is absolutely free and there are a few thousand people in there presently. I jump in each day and answer questions, leave some stuff that I'm finding interesting in the moment. And it is just a great place with some fantastic people. It also includes clips such as this one from Dr. Gabor. So jump over to alignpodcast.com slash community for that and more. Thank you so much, man. I've so greatly, uh, I've looked forward to this conversation. I think this is maybe the third time or so that we've recorded or so. Um, but I just so greatly appreciate uh, you and your impact in the world and um, just who you are. Um, and the myth of normal, I found it to be incredible. I'd highly recommend anyone grabbing that. Uh, my, if people are fans of the book that I did, The Align Method, there's a chapter on play in that book. There's the first chapter, Posture and Personality, is all about this mm. psycho neuroendocrinological perspective or the biopsychosocial yeah. models and pain experience, all that stuff. So I think the myth of normal, you know, does that times a million in comparison to mine. So um, I'm so grateful for you pioneering this work, Dr. Well, I, Mate. And I always appreciate you giving me the platform to, to yeah, express, course, express my ideas and just the pleasure of interacting with you. So thank you so much. Yeah, man. Um, so is there any place to point people in particular? Grab grab the myth of normal? Is it go, go to bookstores? It's been, uh, you know, look, it's spent uh, eight weeks on the New York Times bestsellers list. And um, in, Canada, in Canada, it's been on the bestsellers list since publication in September. It's available everywhere online, yeah. um, bookstores. I always love it when people get it from local bookstores. But it's also available in audio and ebook and Kindle and so it's easy to find. Amazing. All right. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you. Thank you all for tuning in. That is it. That is all. Thank you guys for tuning into that. Feel free to tag myself at Align Podcast, Dr. Gabor at Dr. Gabor Mate. And once again, I am immensely excited and proud to bring you guys the six-week Align Method online program. Been working on it for the last year. It is ready to go. So that's launching the first week of January. You can start the free trial of the first week where you will get a self-assessment of your functionality of your own movement also get into fundamental mobility techniques that you would learn from most pts or manual therapists and it also includes something that is very fun called the sit rise test which is a really fantastic marker of longevity so check that out at alignpodcast.com amp you can sign up for the wait list to begin the free trial which will be the first week so you can sign up now get on the wait list and that is it that is all all right appreciate you guys 